You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show. Friday morning, the 11th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. A statement issued yesterday on behalf of the Taoiseach and the British Prime Minister outlined what was described as a detailed and constructive discussion. Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson said a deal is in everybody's interest and they agreed that they could see a pathway to a possible deal. Their discussions concentrated on the challenges of customs and consent. They also discussed the potential to strengthen bilateral relations, including on Northern Ireland. They agreed, the statement said, to reflect further on their discussions and that officials would continue to engage intensively on them. The Taoiseach will now consult with the EU task force and the UK Brexit Secretary, Steve Barkey, will meet with Michel Barnier today. I'm sure you appreciate that. This is a very sensitive issue and um, we're at a very sensitive stage at the moment, so um, I I won't be able to go into too much detail. Um, I think sometimes at this point in uh, negotiations or discussions, the less said the better. Um, But what I can say uh, is that um, I had a very good meeting today with the Prime Minister and our teams together. Um, very positive uh, and very promising. Taoiseach Leo Radker speaking in Liverpool yesterday. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Justice Martin Kenny is on the line with us. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, do you agree that Boris Johnson has done a complete about turn and uh, agreed now that Northern Ireland must remain in the EU Customs Union or at least that there won't be border checks on this island? Well, we don't know is the, is the short answer. Um, we certainly understand that there has been some positive move, or there appears to have been, from Boris Johnson yesterday. Uh, you know, it's, the difficulty is that the, the, the British government and, and all that side have made a virtue of, of being uh, inconsistent. Boris Johnson can say one thing today and in two days' time say something entirely different and make it sound like it's, it's logical all the way through. And that's the difficulty we have, that we, we're now in this position mm. where there seems to be a movement and there seems to be some progress being made. Uh, of course, that's welcome. It's welcome that there was the meeting. It's welcome that there is uh, some sense of, of, of progress happening. But the difficulty, as I say, is that uh, the British government is, is very hard to, to trust on these matters because they can say one thing today and something different in a couple of days' time. OK, but you can't say the same of the Irish government, or can you? I mean, you don't believe no. for a moment that the Irish government has moved its red lines and the no. position of the government has always been that there can't be customs checks uh, on this island. Indeed, that is the position of the European Union. It's the position of, the, of all of the European countries, and, and in fairness, you know, the, the, um, all the, the partners in Europe have, have stood reasonably firm on this and have said that, you know, the, the border in Ireland has to be dealt with, that these issues have to be sorted out in a way that works for everyone, and that means that we have to ensure that there is no hard border, 
and we also have to ensure, unlike what was in the, the proposal last week, that there would be some kind of a veto uh, mm. in, the, in, in, the, in the north, that uh, the DUP would have a veto on this. That cannot happen. I mean, it's, it's just absurd that that could be even considered. So we're in a position where uh, the British government appear to have uh, moved away from mm. where they were last week. If that has happened, it's welcome. Well, so, it has. That, that, that aspect of it has happened. Uh, I mean, that was confirmed uh, by Julian Smith, the Northern Ireland Secretary to the BBC last night, and he said yeah. no one party will have a veto, i.e. the DUP on its own uh, will not have a veto. Well, that's, that's what he's saying, and that's very welcome. And, I mean, that's what everyone else had said beforehand, that that could not possibly be the case. Um, the difficulty we have is, as I say, the British government cannot be trusted in this matter. They could change their mind. But it appears that the pressure from Europe, and I think the pressure internally from Britain, from the the, um, the whole business community and everyone there who recognises that a crash out Brexit mm. would be hugely detrimental to their economy, to everything that that they, that they need to, to trade with the rest of Europe. I mean, it's, it's just absurd that they were considering a crash out. And I think the pressure has come on to them and the realisation that they need to have a deal. I've always felt that uh, Boris Johnson, despite all his bluster, would finally come to the realisation that there had to be an arrangement put in place because even if he does crash out, within a short period of time, they're back to the same position. The analysis here of this, though, is that because it's a a joint statement, a lot of weight has to be given to it. Uh, And uh, the Taoiseach uh, sounded very upbeat and his demeanour was very upbeat when he spoke to reporters yesterday in Liverpool. And now neither side is engaging in any intensive question and both have gone to ground to allow these talks to take place behind the scene. But it, it does appear as though there has been movement unless the Taoiseach has been made a fool of and Boris Johnson led him up the garden path. But that's not very likely either, is it? Well, we hope we hope it's not likely, but like I said, we can't be sure. You know, I, I do understand that it's certainly in the interests of, of progress for the Irish government to come out and say, you know, that things are, are have changed and that we're working forward and we're moving things forward and to raise expectations. That's what we need to see mm. happen. And I do believe that, uh, you know, Simon Coveney in particular has done a relatively good job in respect of that and has worked hard to try and resolve this situation. We do, of course, have a huge problem with the DUP and the influence they have had to date over the British government. That has waned considerably. Mm. And we, we can only assume that uh, the British government has realised that they now have in a different political system that the arithmetic mm. in Westminster has changed yes. and that that will put them into a position where they have to recognise that they need to have a deal and that their majority is gone anyway so therefore they have to try and arrange a different majority. And, and that's the nub of it. That's the nub of it, isn't it? The DUP has held Europe, if you like, to ransom because of the confidence and supply agreement that it has with the Tories uh, and it's been in a position of power, but now it seems as though Mr. Johnson has thrown them under a bus. He's sold the DUP out and he has said that Northern Ireland will remain in the European Union to all intents and purposes. Uh, that may be the case, you know, and I, I think to speculate too much on that uh, is, it will be premature at this point. We haven't got to the stage where we have an arrangement yet. Certainly for, for those of us, and, and you know, I live in a border region as well, we're very aware of the impact of the border and what it has been uh, on communities living all around it, and indeed the impact of the Good Friday Agreement and the progress that has been made over the past 20 years. In fact, Michael, about, about two years ago, there came a delegation from Germany in the very early stages of when we were looking at this whole uh, issue of, of Brexit, and they'd done a tour of the border. They couldn't understand it. They said, where's the mountain range? Where's the big river? Where's the big divide? Where's the, the natural geographic border? There isn't one. 
this is the border which is just based on, on political expediency. It was a sectarian headcount 100 years ago that created this border. And, and they were astonished because what Brexit done for them and done for everyone that's involved in this process is it magnified the absurdity of a border in Ireland in the first place. And I think that's really at the nub of this. The people realise, you know, this border, I cannot... We could continue to, to dictate the political will of people, not just in Ireland now, but in the context of Brexit across Europe. Uh, referendum is inevitable. Uh, according to a report uh, from Professor Colin Harvey uh, of uh, Queen's University, a report that was uh, commissioned by Sinn Féin, I see. Yes. I think a, I think a referendum on Irish unity is going to happen. I think Irish unity is it's, it's almost the natural conclusion of history. Uh, you know, we, we all we all understand the progress that has been made since the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Mm. The difficulty we have, of course, is that DUP from the very outset wanted to uh, destroy the Good Friday Agreement, and an element of the DUP are still in that position and have tried to use the the issue of Brexit to make that happen. Now, the reality for the majority of people, north and south, is that they realise this issue of, of, of a divided and partition mm. Ireland is actually holding us back economically and politically and in every sense of the word and it will be the making of Ireland for to have it reunited in, with consent that everyone can work together that we can find an accommodation you know I, I think people are having a conversation around that that never had that conversation and, and, and is this Brexit agreement uh, as we've been speculating the first step towards that? I think so. I think. Um, Do you believe I, that Boris Johnson has taken the first step, or is about to take the first step to divide the United Kingdom? I, I think that's the natural consequence of when the when the British people voted for Brexit. That's what they decided to do un, unknowingly. That's that's really what happened. We see the situation with Scotland as well. It's very clear that there will be a referendum in Scotland, probably within the next number of years, and it's very likely that Scotland will choose to leave the United Kingdom and to be go, and to become part of of the, the European Union, and that will create another border. Except the border will be closer to London this time. Do you believe that Boris Johnson is about? to agree that Northern Ireland will leave the European Union in a way that is different to the rest of the United Kingdom? Yes, because the realisation is, and it's just the truth of the matter, that um, the Northern Ireland is different from the rest of Britain. It's on a different island. It has a, national, it has a land border with a member state of the European Union. It has an international peace agreement which has been signed up by uh, the whole, the whole world practically was behind that agreement and have, have forced it to come through, including the European Union and the Americans. It's also an island which has had contested territory for centuries, and we're now seeing the conclusion not just of, of history, but the conclusion of colonialism. This is about, mm. about that slow withdrawal of, of British colonialism, the end of imperialism. And, you know, it's interesting that in, in these days that we're talking about that, borders and lines that were drawn on borders, not just in Ireland 100 years ago, but indeed across the, the Middle East, we see the situation with Kurds. Kurdistan was a country that just disappeared after the Second World War because the British government and the Allies drew new lines on maps without any consideration for the people that live there. And, and the conclusion of that is conflict. And we, we thankfully have moved away from that on this island. And we now have to move to a situation where we have, I think, a complete restoration of our, 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 our national identity and where we are and what we're about as a people and how we can work together to create a better and more prosperous future for all of our people. It's about, it's about the future of Ireland, really. And that's what we need mm-hmm. to do. How do you think the DUP will respond to this? If that is the case, uh, there's been very little that I've heard of uh, from uh, the DUP. I understand uh, that Sammy Wilson has made some comment uh, to uh, the Financial Times saying that that would not be acceptable to the DUP. But how 
serious a, a matter do you think this will be for that party? I think the DUP have to have to come to the realization that uh, for for a, for a great part of this, they are out of step with their own people. I mean, I have spoken to people in County Fermanagh beside me who would have been DUP supporters, and they are terrified of Brexit and terrified of the of the impact that it's going to have. And they realize that the DUP have gone down a road to try and destroy the Good Friday Agreement and strengthen the union, which has actually uh, done the direct opposite to what they set out to do. And they recognise now that the DUP's position is, is one which is, is, is very, very dangerous, and they do not want to go back to the past. They don't want to restore some version of the per- Perhaps that's but true. Perhaps some people believe that, but not everybody does, obviously, no. and I'm sure that the DUP would feel otherwise and that there's many supporters of the DUP and uh, some who would support the DUP or otherwise, uh, but who would consider themselves to be hardline unionists. And there is uh, the potential for violence as a, a result of Mr Johnson's decision if uh, the decision is that Northern Ireland will leave the United Kingdom on on a basis different to the rest of uh, the United Kingdom, or will leave the European Union on a basis different. Uh, the well, rest I, of the I think that I think the the, the the talk of, or even the even to put, to put the, the possibility of, of, of unionist violence back into the frame, you know, is, is is totally absurd in this situation. We have had the Good Friday Agreement, we've had the peace process, the ceasefires, you know, the the, the removal of arms from the conflict for almost twenty years now. And in fairness, the um, uh, the, the loyalist organisations have signed up to that and have accepted that mm. and accepted that as part. As did the Republican organisations. And a, a year or two, it was absurd to suggest that there would be Republican violence, and we've seen plenty of it. Well, we've we've seen, you know, in, in, in the context of, of the conflict, we have seen very little violence. In fairness, in the past number of years, and while any level of it, of course, is unacceptable and wrong and cannot be condoned in any way, you know, it, 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 it's almost I think like we've seen quite a bit of it. Uh, we, we saw a young journalist murdered uh, in Derry. We've seen bombs. Uh, we've seen uh, shots over coffins. Uh, we've seen people kneecapped. Uh, there's been plenty of violence. Well, there has, but, but I go back, Michael, to the point that it has been in a, in, in a very in a very low level compared to what it was prior to the Good Friday Agreement and in the height of the conflict. And that's the point I make. And, and the reality is that we have moved a, a huge distance. And to suggest that loyalist violence or unionist violence would somehow come back into the frame because of this, this situation, I think is a role that we should not even be talking about. I think we have to recognise, you know, that we have moved past that, that we have now in a situation where we have an, we have an agreement mm. as to how we can progress politics. I, I suppose the question is if that is wishful thinking. I don't think it's wishful thinking. I think it's a reality. I think the, 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 the truth is that we have to work out our arrangements. And I think there is, and, and, and we even see reports coming from mm. different people who would have been part of, of uh, uh, loyalist organisations in the past who are accepting. Okay, okay, but, but, today, but today we're talking about something completely different. Today, as a Sinn Féin representative, you're suggesting that Boris Johnson is about to split the United Kingdom and that we're heading towards a referendum which will result in a united Ireland. Well, I think that's inevitable. If Brexit never happened, that was going to be part of the, the conclusion of the Good Friday Agreement, that we were going to come to a stage at some point in the future where we were going to have uh, a referendum on Irish unity. That's, that's written into the Good Friday Agreement. That was signed up to all the parties. Brexit, if you like, has to some extent accelerated that because it has brought the absurdity of the border and all of that into clear focus. But it, it doesn't change that reality, that we're moving into a situation where uh, the future of Ireland will not be determined by a smaller minority of people who hold a particular tradition or allegiance to a British crown, that the future of Ireland is about all of the people of Ireland coming together and recognising that, you know, we have differences. 
that we have to have accommodation for people who have a different view, who have a different identity, and we have to work out a solution for that to ensure that nobody is left behind. And, you know, mm. the Taoiseach said in the past that he was going to make sure that Irish nationals are never left behind again. I think in the context of a united Ireland, we have to make sure that those who identify themselves as, as British and unionists will not be left behind either okay. within, that, within that arrangement. And that's right. a challenge for us, but that's a challenge I think we're all up to. Okay, well, it's one of uh, the few times over the course of uh, the last three years, probably the only time since uh, last December that there's been uh, room for hope and uh, there is some hope it, it would seem uh, that uh, deal can be reached now uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment I'm sure we'll be hearing more throughout the day and indeed over the weekend but thank you for joining us uh, that's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Justice Martin Kenny we are speaking in a bit of a, a vacuum but what is going on let's uh, try and get some political analysis now here's Matt Chorley of the Times Red Box uh, no, nobody really knows so we have to read sort of very, we have to read a huge amount into not very much at all. Uh, so now the fact that they can see what's being called a pathway to a deal uh, is taken as being very exciting. I do does all feel a little bit like the old Theresa May days uh, when a deal was definitely off. It, you know, it was only a couple of days we were being told by Angela Merkel, no way, never. Uh, was uh, a deal ever going to be possible? I think basically on all sides, everyone would like there to be a deal. Uh, Boris Johnson would like there to be a deal. The EU would like there to be a deal. Whether or not they can all sort of end, congregate in the middle of the Venn diagram of what um, both sides uh, would like to accept uh, is another question. I think in reality, I mean, I'd always been of the view that Boris Johnson would get a deal of some description and probably the House of Commons would end up voting for it, uh, even if it was actually worse than Theresa May's deal. The fact it was Boris Johnson who was bringing it to the House of Commons would probably be enough to get it over the line. Um, they're, they're making it look harder work than I was necessarily expecting. Um, uh, but uh, Grant Shacks is telling us to not get too excited. He's the transport secretary. He's also the man who launched a coup against Theresa May because she had a cough. Uh, so he's not a man uh, unused to getting overly excited. I think it's probably more positive than it was yesterday, but then yesterday was more negative than the day before. Matt Chorley of uh, The Times Redbox. The Michael Reed Show. 200,000 children are growing up in homes in this country where there is uh, parental alcohol misuse. Uh, This is according to Alcohol Action Ireland. Its uh, chief executive officer is uh, Dr. Sheila Gilhini, who's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, That's a a shocking statistics and breaks down uh, at one in six young people who are living in homes where alcohol is being uh, abused like this. What kind of impact is it having on these children or do we know? Um, thanks very much uh, for having us on, uh, Michael. Uh, it has a huge impact on these children and not just while they're children but unfortunately uh, on a lifelong uh, experience that really kind of comes from it. Certainly, you know, as a child, they're living in very uncertain circumstances. It really can be extremely traumatic. Obviously, it's different from family to family. It depends on where the child is, their age, the different types of experiences that that they can uh, encounter. But um, we know from research, for example, that's been carried out in the UK, that you know, children in this situation, they're twice as likely to experience difficulties in school. They're three times more likely, mm. actually, to consider suicide. And, you know, I would say there are impacts right through in terms of their relationships, their sense of who they are, their sense of security um, that, that do have lifelong impact. Um, when we talk about alcohol misuse, are we talking about parents who binge drink might have three or four drinks in one sitting or are we talking about people who are palatic? Well, you know, these things fall on a continuum and um, it, 
unfortunately in Ireland we have a very high level of people drinking above the low risk guidelines and in some cases yes that will lead to you know addiction issues but it can lead to just you know people simply not being available for their children when they're needed mm. and uh, and say that that is it, is it is a spectrum that that would be be out there we'd often talk about those low risk guidelines you know uh, drinking no more for men no more than 17 standard drinks in a mm-hmm. week and mm-hmm. for women no more than 11 standard drinks as, as uh, and you can get a lot of good advice on that on the Ask About Alcohol uh, website from the HSE. Um, but we really would be saying that, you know, both for the individuals themselves who are drinking in a high-risk uh, fashion, there's implications for their own mental health. Um, and that's something that we've been you know, keen to point out, particularly uh, yesterday there was uh, World Mental Health Day, that there is an impact, um, there, there's a very strong connection between alcohol and mental health, um, your, your own mental health. Alcohol itself is a depressant drug. Um, it, you know, if you're already feeling uh, a bit down, actually to have alcohol only increases that that feeling. Um, sometimes people, you know, can be feeling anxious, and unfortunately, anxiety is another one of these conditions that is actually exacerbated uh, by using alcohol. Mm. Uh, and if uh, alcohol has been abused in uh, the way that you suggest, uh, I suppose the sense of security that children need can be lost. But are, are we talking about violent situations, uh, situations uh, where there may be abuse or neglect, as the case may be? Yes, there certainly can be neglect and there can be abuse. There can, though, as I say, be the sense that the parent is simply not there, not available to, you know, make sure that the homework is, is done, that there's food in the house, that, you know, the practical uh, day-to-day, you know, uh, uh, necessities of a child are actually being met, being met. Now, there can be great love in that family as well, um, uh, you, you know, mm. but unfortunately, you know, a, a child has needs um, and that, that really do need to be met. And I would say fundamental to that is the sense of security of the feeling of the parent is there always and is present, not in this kind of half there, half not there, waiting for them to come home or the, for the child coming in from school, you know, not sure what to actually expect. Um, you know, will, will the loving parent be there or will, will this other side of a person, you know, that, that, that is very frightening for them to experience? We've been um, collecting stories actually from um, people who have been affected and have grown up in this situation um, and through an initiative that we have called Silent Voices. And um, actually, it, it, um, it would really break your heart, you know, if you read those stories, that mm-hmm. they would be on our, our website uh, where people talk about that. Uh, not knowing and, you know, how, how that has given them a, a lifelong sense of not being sure of themselves, not being sure of their relationships, uh, you, you know, of, and they go on to form relationships in, themselves, be, being on very unfirm ground. And uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would ask people just, you know, even to take a wee look at those stories and certainly for other people who are, you know, have experienced this and they want to share that because it very much helps to inform our own thinking about that and in terms of the sort of asks, the sort of policy changes that we would be looking for from, from government. Mm. And why is that, do you think? Is it that uh, we learn how to have relationships and that the relationships we have today are, are based uh, to some degree on the experience of relationships we had previously and if the very first and most important relationship in your life uh, that uh, with your parents where you look to somebody to protect you and give you that sense of security if that is flawed that it leaves you in this sense of insecurity Yes, that, you've hit the nail on the head. That is exactly that. Our first sense of security comes from our, our parents. And, you know, where, where that is, is missing, uh, everything else uh, is is thrown into question, really, from that. Mm. And, um, and, and sometimes, you know, some of these ch- 
children are exceptional copers, if you like. You mm. know, they very often take on a parenting role themselves and, um, you know, look after younger siblings, look after the parents. Um, and uh, sometimes on the outside appear to be managing and coping incredibly well, mm. um, but ha- have this, you know, deep anxiety that can then manifest itself at a later date. Now, sometimes that can be, you know, at a when circumstances change is maybe when they leave home for the first time, perhaps get into a relationship uh, themselves, maybe have their own first child. Um, you know, the, these are times when that can really rear itself up and become a, a, a very, uh, I suppose, literally, the, the, you know, the, everything falls away at, at that point and it's kind of like they're left sort of looking back and thinking, how have I, how have I found myself in this situation? What has it been mm-hmm. all about? And of course, that love is still there, you know, between mm-hmm. the parent and the child. And it, it's exceptionally difficult um, to have to uh, come face to face with the trauma that has been experienced. And I, I take it as uh, there's a, a broad spectrum of neglect of these children as a result of parental alcohol use or misuse uh, from distraction or not having interest uh, or, or checking to see if uh, they're doing their homework uh, to issues more serious such as not being at home because they're down in the pub or not being able to put food on the table because all of the money goes on drink or children coming home and finding their parents uh, asleep on the floor wondering if they're dead. Yes, you know, so yes, there, there, there is, there is a, a spectrum that would, would be out there. Um, and uh, unfortunately, because in Ireland we have such a high level of alcohol consumption, um, the, the greater, if you like it from a statistical point of view, the greater the amount of <clears throat> consumption of alcohol at, at risky levels uh, in, in the country that there is, then the greater the likelihood of these problems existing and, and indeed uh, becoming more and more exacerbated. And you'd like to see better treatment services available to people who are in that situation? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I, I would be taking it even back one step further. I would be looking, you know, um, at, at every possible opportunity, you know, that uh, health professionals could intervene um, to simply ask people about their drinking before it's actually getting to the point where you're talking about needing uh, intensive um uh, you know, therapeutic or addiction services. That um, you, you know, at at every point, if if we had, a, a, I suppose, just this question being asked, you know, how much are you drinking at the moment? Mm. You know, do you want to take a wee look at at that and go back and look at, you know, well, what are the guidelines? What would be the low risk uh, approach? Because sometimes people can slip into drinking in a risky fashion without even quite realizing the impact that it's having on their own health, and that's both their physical health and their own um, mental health. But uh, then this why kind of uh, impact that it has on those around them. Okay, we'll leave it there and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Dr Sheila Gilhaney is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Alcohol Action Ireland. The Michael Reed Show. Alone, uh, the charity uh, that helps uh, people uh, to age in their own homes has said that the budget announced uh, this week will be a very difficult budget uh, for older people. And uh, there are people who are already struggling, who are vulnerable, who are going to find it more difficult over the course of the last year. Sean Moynihan, Chief Executive of Alone, is back with us. And before the budget was announced, you were saying you wanted an increase in the pension of between 7 and 9 euros. 
euro to match 35% of average earnings. That didn't happen, of course, but there has been this increase in the carbon tax. And despite a two euro increase in the fuel allowance, you're saying this is going to impact terribly on older people, people who are already not heating their homes until the house is too cold or staying in bed so as they can stay warm. Yeah, I think, I suppose, there's been a lot of disappointment around the budget. You know, the the whole budget focus has been said to be getting Brexit ready, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the RSI said, has said that uh, the average Irish ho- households, the cost of Brexit, Brexit should I say, is, is around €892 Euros to €1,300 per household. Now, obviously, if the poorer households and pensioners are part of that, that will actually take the, bre- the hit of that. Mm. So, ironically, you, you needed mitigation against Brexit into the poor people who are poorest because it's food prices, you know, obviously with carbon tax and Brexit, it's transport costs, it's medicine costs that are going to go up, and they naturally hit those who are the least able to absorb those changes and costs. So we figure that we really haven't insulated our people against Brexit. And if it does happen, then these are the people that will struggle all year and have to wait till 2021's budget Mm. before any mitigation goes in. Okay, and it was predicated on uh, the basis that there would be a no-deal Brexit. Uh, It seems as though there might be a a deal. Uh, If there is a a deal, and it's a good deal, uh, would you hope that the government would come back to the... Uh, projections for next year and uh, give something back to people. I, I think so. We 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 think that like you know we, you know the the, the 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 poorest in our society can't you know what I mean need you know what we tend to do is is we rise social welfare costs or we we add them rather than actually consistently every year mm. you know index link things and keep things moving over. People don't realise that the pension is just above the poverty line, or honest, depending on where, you know, the, the, where some of that moves relative to wages. But literally, people are just on, on the poverty line. So if anything hits them, they can struggle. And when we launched our pre-budget, we did it with all the people coming in, telling the stories of how they struggled on the budget and the choices they had to make. And that could be around transport, petrol, not being able to go out, not being able to get petrol this week. And if anything hits you, a bill, 50 quid, 100 quid, it can knock a very delicate balance off. Now, mm. plenty of retired people might have public service pensions or private yeah, pensions, yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But most people, forty, I think it's 40%, just live on the basic pension, and they're the ones that are vulnerable to the to these hits. And you're talking about people who are on the poverty line, uh, but what about yeah. those who are, are below it? Uh, because uh, last count, uh, I think, was in 2017, and uh, the estimate then was 63,000 people over the age of 65 who were experiencing enforced deprivation. Yeah, and and they're, they're people who actually go go are going without hot meals at times, going without the, what we consider really the ba- the basics of life, and all of these are are, are the state states the states figures. They're they're not our figures, so we're working off ERSI and CSO numbers here. And I think we we've got to remember, you know, the carbon ta- ta- tax. You know, mm. it, it's again, it's a very blunt instrument. Older people naturally live in the older houses, yeah. probably with lower BER ratings. Mm. But, but 
heating for them is a public health issue. Of course it is, but they're not selfish on the other hand, are they? I mean, they don't want to destroy the planet. They want uh, their children and their children's children to inherit uh, the planet that we live on and that uh, the environment will be protected. Why don't they retrofit their houses? Well, you see, that's it. The warmer home scheme actually only got an extra 13 million. Right. So you think that what we do is, is right, we have to increase carbon. Everybody mm. agrees. Right. Look, you know what I mean? The global warming, climate change. Yeah. We need yeah. to do these things. But then how do you mitigate? Mm. And so that would mean that you actually, as you say, mm. you, 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 you increase the warmer home schemes. You make these grants easier to, mm. to, 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 to get at. If there's a situation where you could even produce a scheme where people could even pay back for them over time. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like you, you know, well, this is it. I mean, a carbon tax shouldn't a carbon tax shouldn't raise any money at all, uh, and nobody yeah. would mind paying sixteen euro extra for a, a fill of oil if you lose if you used yeah. less oil uh, and actually uh, you saved sixteen euro because you were using less oil because your house was insulated to the degree that you didn't need as much. Absolutely, and I think you've got it there. And I mean, for us again, the same thing is: is these these are the things that hit the people who are least able to cope the most. And we don't want to be negative. I, I was reading there the other day with obviously the uh, uh, protests in Dublin and that mm-hmm. that actually said seventy one percent, hundred. Well, what is it? They're, they're saying a hundred organisations does seventy one percent of the carbon usage in the country. Right? Yeah. One wonders whether you would have been better going around having a conversation with those hundred organizations and saying, What can you do to mitigate? Do you know what I mean? To start mm. that conversation. Mm. Because we, we need big structural and systematic change at that level if we're, if we're go- going to do that. Mm. So I think for us, is, is, you know, people talk about budgets and they use nice language like opportunity missed. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But, you know, governments and that get to make decisions. And I heard. Um, I think uh, um, on another radio show both the Minister and uh, the opposition spokesman on finance interviewed and they were saying they put 300 million aside for social protection in case increased unemployment so that's why they couldn't give rises in the pension and the base rate and it sort of occurred to me is that sort of poor people paying for poor people Mm. rather than us who maybe have the ability to support actually contributing a little bit more. Well, this is the point, I suppose. Uh, and uh, when it, it comes uh, to the carbon tax, uh, there's been a, a lot of pressure on the government and they seem to have bought into the idea of this. Uh, but their responses to the type of questions that you're asking now are, I think, somewhat questionable. I mean, if you say to them, well, what do I get for the extra two cents a, a litre on diesel? Uh, they say, well, don't buy diesel, get an electric car. And you think, well, what if I could? But I can't afford one. So what option do I have but to pay the two cents? And they say, well, then, look, don't worry about that because that'll be ring-fenced and it'll go into some climate change scheme, whether that's retrofitting homes or or whatever, because that's what young people want. Uh, And I think there are people uh, who are quite reasonably saying, well, I can't afford the extra on my petrol, my diesel or my home-eating oil. If the young people want this, why don't they put a charge on mobile phones? Yeah, look, I, I, I think, I mean, the, people always talk about behavioural change in these areas. And, you know, they always point to the plastic bag tax, all right? But the point is, is we had other options. We had bags for life, do you know what I mean? Mm. We, we, we could do something else. The point here is, is so many people here ha- don't have other choices. 
So as the taxes increase and we've been flagged that it's going to keep increasing every year for the next decade, right? People mm. don't, as you say, the transport structure isn't there. The ins- the ability to put the insulation in there to cut and mitigate and balance it out isn't there. So I think we just need to give people those positive choices. People want to do this, but we need to give them the ability to actually make behavioural changes. And people want to grow old in their own homes, uh, but you're hearing from people who have been told uh, that they have to leave uh, rented accommodation. You're hearing from people who are in B&Bs, sleeping in their cars and uh, living in hostels. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually at the moment down in Wexford at the Irish Council for Social Housing um, conference, and I was speaking about this because really for us, obviously, older people's housing, and we experience uh, the world we do is, is we have We've in Dublin alone this year. We we we've had 228 applications for housing, and on top half of them were on notice to quit. And what we're saying to the other housing associations and government is that there's a whole problem building up as house ownership drops of older people who never bought but cannot compete in high rents, which have spread both urban and rural now. And when people are on fixed incomes. You know, when they retire, how do they pay the rent? If a spouse dies, how do they pay the rent? We need the long-term leases. If we're going to be a country, and this affects everybody in their 40s and 50s who haven't bought, how will they ever get to retire? How will they ever get to live in a nice, comfortable apartment or house in their old age if we don't have long-term leases and security? All right. Well, uh, some of us won't live long enough uh, to reach retirement age uh, the way it's going, uh, but uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. And uh, thanks very much for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sean Moynihan, Chief Executive of Loan. The Michael Reed Show. Now we're joined uh, by Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan of uh, the Louth Garda Division following a, an early morning arrest. Good morning to you, Chief Superintendent, and uh, thanks for joining us. A man arrested uh, between six and half six, as we understand it, in Hackball's Cross. This following this follows uh, these shots that were fired at that house in Arthurstown two days ago. Good morning, Michael. Yes, uh, I suppose just to clarify, the, the original incident we were investigating was an allegation of shots fired in the vicinity of a house. It wasn't uh, shots weren't discharged actually into the house. So the allegations that were fired in the vicinity of the house, and obviously an investigation was launched on the morning of the the ninth, um, and there was a, a substantial policing plan put in place to endeavour to uh, arrest the person suspected been involved in, the, in that incident. Um, that involved uh, our local uh, armed units and also units from Cavan Monaghan and the Mead uh, Division. And we also had uh, uh, significant involvement of national units and it also had a cross-border dimension with the PSNI. We also appointed a senior investigating officer to deal with and manage the, uh, the operation, the Superintendent Pat O'Connell from RD Garda Station. So uh, it, it was a protracted investigation which involved a number of other incidents that we are investigating that, 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 that happened over the, the last 72 hours. And um, this morning, uh, a male in his 30s was arrested in the Hackball's Cross area of Loud at approximately 6.15am. And there, that, that person is now currently detained under the provisions of Section 33 of the Offence Against the State Act at Draw the Garda Station. And uh, the investigation will continue at pace. Can you explain that a, a little bit more for us, uh, Chief Superintendent? When you yeah. say the shots were fired in the vicinity of a house, uh, do you know what the intended target was? 
Well, we're investigating the exact circumstances, but it, it's just, it's important to, you know, be exact. It, 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 they, you know, and I, I don't want to go into the, <clears throat> the minutiae of the, of the investigation, but we're discharged, the allegation is that they were discharged on the curtilage of, of the, the, the house. And then the, the allegation is that the person left the area and... Were, uh, were there people in the vicinity of the house? There was people in the house. In, in the house, but not, but, but not outside of the house? No, and people people weren't injured, but we certainly were left in a distressed state. Right, uh, and the intention, uh, or, or do you believe that the intention was to uh, leave those people in a distressed state? Well, it's certainly the event caused a, a severe distress for the people involved. Um, so it, it certainly is something that we intend to fully investigate and, and get answers to for the people involved. And is it right that this man arrived in one car, a Mercedes, uh, and then left in a, a, a different car, uh, this uh, Avensis? Uh, did he steal the second car? We're investigating the circumstances surrounding the, the, the events that took place, but we, we did take the, the uh, I suppose, unusual step on the morning of the incident that we, we did um, release an appeal to, for the to public further assistance in tra- tracing the whereabouts of an 11 WW-registered Silver, uh, silver Toyota Avensis, and we did advise the, the public, uh, members of the public, not to approach the vehicle because of the because of the the dangers of the situation that was evolving. So you know, the we have been working very, very hard around the clock, twenty four hours, uh, you know, trying to bring this matter to a resolution, and it has been brought to a resolution to a certain degree. Obviously, there's an investigation which I can't go into at the moment, but. The public have been, you know, invaluable in, in this assistance that they have provided. Uh, it, it certainly was not a, an easy matter to deal with, but it has been dealt with. Uh, yeah, and and it was a, a cross-border event, uh, reports at least, uh, that this man crossed over the border and back again. Are, are they correct? Well, what is alleged is that he, he, he crossed over, uh, that the, the person involved may have crossed over on a number of occasions, but even the... The, the border and 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 the, as you know, it's mm. quite a, quite a large border. It's very very hard to police it. Uh, every border crossing, we have the M1, and a considerable amount of traffic goes up and down it every every minute. And were some cars damaged by bullets? Uh, no. Um, well, it's it, it's part of the investigation. So I'm I, I'm just not going to go into the, the the actual investigation now. The fact that we have a person uh, detained because that that's something we have mm. to do with here. Now. Okay. And uh, the armed response unit and uh, support unit uh, were uh, involved in this. Uh, were you happy with uh, the response and how speeded the response was? Because uh, there have been uh, reports uh, that there's been a reduced presence in Laud as a result of problems in Cavan? Well, Michael, I don't know where that information is coming from, but I certainly want to reassure the public in, 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 in Drogheda and certainly in Loud that we have had no reduction in the amount of armed members, uh, armed support, uh, certainly, um, and that's here anyway in relation to operations strategies. And in fact, since the incidents have been evolving, um, this week, I, I drafted in considerable resources from Dublin uh, in, in the guise of the emergency response unit. So they have been here to assist us in bringing all matters to a resolution. So I, I don't know where that, that, that uh, information has come from, but I certainly uh, discount it because 
I have the officers here and and, and I meet them on a, on a on a daily basis. Uh, I was in here bright and early this morning, and they were here. So and they're going to be here uh, very very. They're here all the time. So I just wanted to dispel that, and it, and it is a myth that that uh, uh, events in Cavan have. Um, Provide uh, that they're a drain on our resources. They certainly are not a drain on our resources. And in fact, if anything, we had a huge cooperation between Cavan Monaghan and ourselves, and obviously Mead because of the proximity uh, to the border and and uh, drawn up plan to deal deal with the incidents uh, and and prevent other incidents. So. It has been a, a good opera, a good operation. Okay, and a, a very uh, serious operation at that. I'm sure people will be very happy to hear that it's uh, been a successful resolution, and uh, people can uh, sleep somewhat more soundly tonight uh, as a result of uh, the efforts of Angarda Shiakana. Thank you very much, and Chiefs, uh, indeed, Chief Superintendent, for joining us uh, on the program this morning. That's uh, Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan of the Louth Garda Division. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us, Marie Kerr joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. A little bit of optimism this morning on the phones because is there finally light, Michael, at mm. the end of that long, dark Brexit tunnel? Well, Ma- it seems <laughs> as though they're going to go into the tunnel. Uh, this is uh, the phrase that they're using uh, about uh, talks, uh, about talks behind the scenes before they come out and uh, announce an agreement and that is where the optimism is. It's going into the tunnel at the end of the tunnel. Well, Mark thinks there finally seems to be light and he's saying this morning, hallelujah, Michael, Mm -hmm. because he says it has to be welcomed after what seems like years and years of talks. But he would echo uh, Jeopardy Martin Kenny's concerns about whether or not the British government can be trusted to follow through on the progress made yesterday. Mm. They have chopped and they have changed their position so many times during the talks. How can we be sure they won't do it again? Yeah, an interesting point. Well, we can't really, I suppose. Catherine says it's amazing, Michael, that after all the years, the months, the weeks, the days, the hours that have been spent on Brexit, there appears to be some sort of meeting meeting of minds mm. between Leo and Boris. Is it because Boris's back is against the wall now and he fears repercussions if he does not get Brexit before a general election? She's wondering why the sudden change of heart, if that is what is happening. Uh, Tommy from Drogheda was listening in to the interview with uh, Sean Moynihan from Alone and he says that one thing that's been omitted in the discussion about pensioners and the struggle that many pensioners are facing financially is property tax that they're still having to pay. Mm. And he thinks that that should be, you know, abolishing property tax should be considered for pensioners because it is a big issue. He says that he's paying €225 every year and that nobody is mentioning that. It's a huge chunk of I think whenever you do mention it, uh, you're told you don't actually have to pay it. You can defer it uh, if uh, you feel that you can't uh, afford it. It'll stay on the house and... uh, Whoever ends up with the house will have to pay it eventually, but you can defer the payment. Joanne said that she doesn't really have a lot of sympathy for pensioners. She feels that they're always uh, complaining and moaning and she says that many pensioners she knows are very well off. She says she understands that there are probably some who are totally reliant on the state pension and maybe do have struggles but she says there's a vast majority of pensioners who are flying away on holidays every year Uh, dine out all the time and have more money 
than most families. Mm. So no sympathy there. Grania has been listening with interest to our coverage on the budget, she says, and to the carbon tax issue in particular. And she just doesn't get it. She says, is the government planning to increase this every year so that the ordinary householder will not be able to afford to put oil in their tanks or coal and turf Mm. in their fire? Yes. So what are they to do to keep them warm? She says, I'd love to retrofit Mm. my house. That's Mm. what they seem to be calling it. But I'm hearing, Michael, costs of up to €30,000. Is that what they're talking about? And then some. Yeah, 30000 40000 50000 60000 So that's what she doesn't mm. understand where are ordinary people expected to get that type of money from but yet mm-hmm. we're going to be priced out of being able to heat our home before hiking up this tax I really think, think there should be more thought put into it and it should be brought in along with the introduction of affordable measures she mm. feels it's all wrong and it's not going to work approaching it from that point of view. Yes, well, uh, it is to increase every year. It's gone from 20 to 26 a a tonne and it's to go to 80 euro a tonne. As you heard this morning, the number of people treated in hospital for drug or alcohol addiction disorders increased by nearly 10% last year. Figures under the Freedom of Information Act show that 543 people had one of these illnesses as a main diagnosis in 2018. The Family Addiction Support Network is an organisation that helps families in the northeast affected by addiction. Marie Kearns paid a visit to their hub in Dundalk to find out more. I had a family member in addiction. Someone put me in touch with the network and a person came down to meet me. I really didn't want to go to a meeting, but they came down and met me and told me all about it. And through many tears, I decided to go to a meeting. And I could say now that it saved my life. It saved my family's life. Uh, I went to the meeting and I cried through the whole meeting. I think it was a relief that everyone in the room understood what I was talking about and where I was. They also understood the frustration and the shame and the loneliness that you feel when you have a family member in addiction. I think that I left the meeting that day with hope that I could do something because I really felt helpless. I didn't know where to turn or what to do. But this group gave me hope. Mary, not her real name is grateful every day for the support she has received from the Louth-based Family Addiction Support Network as she tried to come to terms with having a loved one dependent on drugs. She's now helping others facing that same sense of devastation and despair. I kept going to meetings and I got stronger. So when I got stronger, I could support the family member that was in addiction. I, I didn't know how to support. How do you support someone? But they taught me how to do it and how to support myself. Because if I'm not strong enough, how am I going to help them? I had to be strong myself. I did that and I kept going to the meeting for a long, long time until I felt well enough. And now, thank God, my family member is well enough. So from there, I ended up becoming a facilitator of the network. So I'm kind of giving back now, if you like. And I think if people do come to a meeting and they want support or advice or help, it's from someone who's walked in their shoes and knows where they are and if I look for advice off someone I want it off someone who's had the experience so I think when I sit in a room with family members and they know that I've been there too they have confidence in that I'm advising them or uh, supporting them in the right way Can I ask you your family member what was the addiction? The addiction was drugs 
But I think nowadays there is, there always was alcohol and gambling, um, but drugs is to the forefront, especially in the town at the moment, in, in the county. And the age groups, unfortunately, are becoming younger that are involved in it. So we're finding family members that are coming with children that are quite young from primary school up and out of their teens. Or some people who have, you know, lived with addiction for a long time and haven't done anything about it, so are really caught in the trap. Were you caught unawares? I was. I, I never thought that someone in my family was going to become addicted to drugs. You know, you look out for the signs, but you've no experience. It's not as if, you know, instructions come with a child nowadays of what to look out for. I was really uneducated in that area. So I didn't know what to look for. And it did come upon me all of a sudden. And I was really shocked. And I was also shamed that it was me that I'd done something wrong as a parent. What do I do? How do I make it right? How do I fix them? That's really was the questions I needed to know. Gwen McKenna, who is one of the founding members of the Family Addiction Support Network, explains what led to her forming the group. In um, 2000, uh, addiction came to my own family and um, I, I got into an awful state about it, the shame and the guilt, and I retreated for a little while. But then I realised that um, I had made a, a judgement on, the, say, the the family of somebody in addiction or the person themselves that was in the addiction you know and I would have been looking at say the mother and I would have said well the mother's like this no social skills you know goes around pyjamas all days and thing. And then all of a sudden I realise oh my god that's me I am, I am that person but I'm not really that person and so that whole big judgement uh, I had judged myself. So you had a picture in your head of what a family was like that had somebody with addiction and then it came to your doorstep and the realisation dawned yeah. that it could happen to anybody. Absolutely. It has no boundaries, unfortunately, because you could throw them all over that boundary if it was, you know, but there is no boundaries. It doesn't make any difference who you are, where you are, where you're from. It makes no difference whatsoever. If you buy into this culture, you're you're sucked into it. And it's not only the person with the addiction, but it's the family members. Everybody's affected. So from that, we we, uh, we decided to develop a, a programme, um, Parenting in the Drug Age, and we, we started delivering that and we formed a group in Cavan, Cavan Drug Awareness, that's still running today, um, which is brilliant. But the Family Support Network became very, there was a big, big need for families out of that uh, to get educated, to get support. The other thing is, it's a very lonely place to be, a shocking lonely place to be, because you isolate yourself because of what you're going through, you know, because of your fears and, and whatever else is going on. But you're also isolated in the community because of the stigma and the shame that's out there. That's why we came together. We would meet family members in the same position. It was brilliant. You belonged to a group. You felt like you belonged. They could understand what you were talking about. No criticism, no judgment at all. And so the healing began. began. But then you discover that you can't fix the person in addiction. You can only fix yourself. And so it's learning that within the groups. And that's what the groups provide. We have our five groups running in four counties. That's right. So you're allowed me, Cavan Monaghan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a group in each of those areas, you know, in Castle Blaney, in Cavan, in Navan, in Drogheda and Dundalk. Drugs locally have been making the news more than usual lately because of the fallout from the Drogheda gangland feud. And Jackie McKenna, the project coordinator with the Family Addiction Support Network, 
explains that there are many different services to assist families. We have the Drugs Report and Intimidation Service for family members who find themselves in the position of being intimidated by drugs gangs. Um, so uh, we work in conjunction with the Garda Síochána in providing a safe space and to be able to support family members through that horrific experience. Demand on their services, which are provided free of charge, is increasing. We can see that that's rising in the Drogheda group in particular. It's gone to full capacity, so there's a need to establish another family support group in the area, as in other areas. So it's just a matter of time, because drugs are not going to go away. We need to learn how to manage them. We're all rearing our children in the drugs age, uh, the norm drug culture that is now. When we were growing up, the normal drug culture was alcohol and cigarettes and drugs wasn't an issue at that stage. So we need to be able to manage it. And what would you say to a parent who maybe in the last week has discovered their child has an addiction or to a spouse who maybe has discovered their partner has an addiction? What would you say to them now? I would say uh, try not to panic and gather the courage to lift the phone because that's the hardest step is to take that first step to make a phone call to ask for help because of the stigma and um, the feeling that you've done something wrong as a parent or that the children are going to be taken away from you. That's not the case whatsoever. And in terms of funding, I know you held a briefing this week for politicians just to spread the word about your services, everything is voluntary. That's right, yeah. We run a project here in Lishtoff in Dundalk. And I want to say thank you, a major big thank you to Loud County Council uh, for offering us that premises. It has really put family support on the map. And then you have outreach services. That's right. We have the five groups up and running in the various areas, but we have uh, our headquarters here in Dundalk and we provide a 24-7 helpline number, which is so important because every service closed down at five o'clock on a Friday evening, which they're entitled to. But that's when everything kicks off for family members and for families at the weekends. So we have 24-7 helpline. We have one-to-one access to one-to-one counselling. We have the five-step brief intervention method. We have um, access to respite. We also deliver a 10-week educational programme for family members. Yes, it's a very comprehensive suite of help out there. So we just need to get the information out there. But it cannot be sustained on volunteering alone. We absolutely need to have core funding to be sustainable for the future generations. Because as I said, drugs are not going away. We need to manage it. We need to put in the services uh, to help promote health and well-being uh, for everyone in the community. You also have a commemoration ceremony. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's right. We have an annual service of commemoration every year and that's a service where people can come to to remember their loved one who has passed away through addiction. And uh, we provide this every year. It provides comfort and an opportunity to, to grieve for their loved ones because when you're involved in addiction, there's such a stigma around addiction that the support is not as forthcoming within communities and people don't know how to address it. So therefore, family members can feel isolated and families can feel isolated. So we like to provide a service of commemoration. Our commemoration this year is on on the 29th of November here in Lishtoff. 
Jackie McKenna of uh, the Family Addiction Support Network uh, speaking with uh, Marie Kearns. And uh, if you'd like to speak to Jackie or members of uh, the Family Addiction Support Network, uh, they uh, uh, provide help on a 24-hour basis on the following number, 87 That's 087-9046-405. The Michael Reed Show. A mixed-race couple from County Meath had to leave uh, the country along with uh, their little boy because of the level of abuse that they received online following their participation in an advertising campaign for the Lidl supermarket. Fianna Fáil TD Jack Chambers told the Justice Committee this week that 33-year-old Fiona Ryan and 32-year-old Jonathan Mathis received death trests, racist abuse, and were subjected to shocking commentary online and wanted to know how companies like Twitter responded to protect people from this type of behaviour. Twitter's Director of Public Policy, Karen White, has said uh, that they do a number of things. They can lock an account, they can tell a user that he or she has violated Twitter's rules or that a specific rule has been violated or they could delete the content in question or or verify an email, telephone number, or many other things they can do, she said. So if someone tweets something that's evidently racist and causes what results in a family having to leave a country uh, that is questioning its habitation in a country, is deleting that particular tweet sufficient in terms of enforcement? Or... Should there not be a much greater consequence for the person who publishes that tweet? As I said, the enforcement action of requesting somebody to delete a, a tweet... And do you think a, that's sufficient? That there is a purpose there in trying to educate that particular uh, user that they have broken the, the rules. Consistent rule violations will result in permanent suspension. If a user engages in violent threats, for example, that uh, could lead to the permanent uh, suspension of, of their account. Indeed, then, if law enforcement uh, were to you know, s- trigger an investigation, for example, on the back of uh, uh, some behaviour like that, then we can work with them as, as, as part of their as part of their investigation. So there really is a lot of different enforcement action that we can take uh, dependent on, on the rules that have been, that have been violated. Do, do you not agree that for someone who's been made subject to that content and the consequences of it, that sim- a simple deletion of that tweet is a really weak enforcement consequence for the person who's brought such hatred to their lives? I think that is, you know... The, the enforcement action that that we can we can take uh, present presently, but you know I think progress in in this area relating to the, the type of behaviour that you're talking about is is incredibly uh, tough, and you know I think there's a wider sort of societal issue that needs to be uh, addressed here. It's you know simply removing the content from a service. Uh, is is not necessarily in all instances uh, going to to change the somewhat uh, you know intolerance and and uh, you know but with respect that you have re- your, your service pr- promotes that content to a huge audience would you re- agree with that that it's one of the no I wouldn't agree with that how does this well in that if, 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 someone, if, someone, just in the if someone with a huge amount of followers uh, 
brings hatred or information to a big audience that promotes a racist message to a huge audience and does simple deletion of that uh, rectify and remedy the consequence for the person who feels they have to leave their country i think there's 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 a there's a range of 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 um, there's a range of, of, of things that happen when, when that type of behaviour is identified on the service. From either, you know, taking enforcement action, uh, asking for the, the content to be deleted, in other instances of actually suspending accounts if violent threats or, or others are, are made. But our, our rules are very clear in this particular area relating to abusive behaviour and, 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 and hateful conduct. Karen White uh, responding on behalf of uh, Twitter to Fianna Fáil TD Jack Chambers at a meeting of uh, the Justice Committee this week. Jack Chambers is on the line with us now and a very good morning to you and I, I don't think uh, you were too pleased with uh, the answers uh, that you received. You said that the terms uh, that Miss White was responding in were so broad that it was uh, akin to fudging the questions I think so and I think uh, you know Twitter's response in in, for, in the example I raised in a couple from County Mees uh, the fact that they had to leave their country Fiona Ryan and Jonathan Mathis demonstrates uh, that Twitter facilitated this content online for a period a significant period of time uh, and when the couple saw that content they were shocked by the, the level of racism the hatred uh, and the threats online uh, I think the problem here is that Twitter has taken uh, the softest approach first uh, and from there and, and a really weak approach so that their enforcement mechanisms uh, continue to facilitate uh, you know, racist content for too long a time and that allows uh, that to, to grow and to be spread uh, and, and to the detriment of the family that were involved. And I also think the response from Twitter, they actually, it wasn't played in that clip, I know, clip because I know it, was a, it was a long interaction, mm-hmm. but they actually referred, as, as part of their defence, they referred to counter-speech and how counter-speech can uh, promote kind of conversations around issues. Now, I think for the family involved to hear a tech company like Twitter uh, defend the platform they that that they have on the basis that it allows for counter speech and allows for conversations about issues. I think they would would have preferred that this content be dealt with very quickly in an expeditious manner, but also that the the people who publish and promote this content that they're dealt with in a much uh, in a, in a much stronger way by the company involved. Well, that, that, that's a, a question in itself. Who is the publisher? Uh, is it the person who's posted the abusive text or, or is it Twitter who has published that text on their behalf? And, and that's that's why the, the Joint Directors uh, Justice Equality Committee is examining this whole issue. Not only because uh, we've had we've lots of examples. We also had uh, you know the, some of the directors of Quinn Industrial Holdings for example, not too far from many of your listeners, uh, who who are subjected to uh, threats online on Facebook, for example, that was left there for a significant period of time until the, the horrific incident occurred. Uh, and I think the technological companies, they're, at the moment, they're pretending they're community platforms with no responsibility for the content mm. uh, that they facilitate. Uh, and I think um, states and, and the European Union, actually, as a whole, uh, need to address this in a greater way. way. And I think there has to be a balancing of rights so freedom of expression is extremely important, but so is 
the right to privacy and, uh, and 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 actually the right to be protected as individuals. And I think there needs to be a balancing of rights. I think greater obligations need to be imposed on technological companies to take greater responsibility for their content and also to enhance their enforcement mechanisms. So, for example, Twitter simply, simply deleting a tweet hmm. uh, when the damage is done for that couple uh, didn't remedy their, their difficult situation where they had to leave our, our, our country. And I think... Um, you know, they, they, they were they were in the middle of that damage. I think for Twitter to even use counter speech as a like, should should people have to experience that yeah. content so that mm-hmm. we have to have this mature conversation? I think uh, you know, Twitter really were presented a fudge. Uh, they want no regulation because that suits their balance sheet. And I think uh, you know, unfortunately, led the different parliaments across the world, including Ireland, are only now getting to grips with the consequences of harmful content online. I think that's why mm-hmm. uh, it's positive that the Justice Committee across all parties is actually trying to examine this issue and hopefully propose recommendations so that Ireland can, can lead in this area. I think we have an extra mm-hmm. responsibility because many of these companies have their European and international headquarters residing here. And that's online where there isn't any regulation. We're on the radio now where there is regulation. And let's say Mary in Navin rang in and said something about Fiona Ryan and Jonathan Mattis and we read it out. People would say, uh, well, why did you read it out? Not only that, but we'd be in trouble. We'd be in breach of uh, the regulations. Now, we might claim, well, we didn't say it. Mary in Navin said it. Uh, but we'd be told, no, you read it out. You're the publisher. In the same way, uh, if uh, Harry in RD ran in, rang in and said something about the Quinn Group. Uh, If we read it out, we're the publisher. It's like writing a a letter to a newspaper. If the newspaper publishes the letter, the newspaper is the publisher. But it's different for these social network platforms. If Twitter publishes a comment by somebody, it's not their comment. They say they're just a facilitator. How how does that figure? I think, and that's exactly the problem, because you've got two issues here. You've got the the fact that, as you said, if 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 anything is said by any broadcaster, they're directly responsible for it, even if it has no link to what uh, to to what's on the show. As you said, if a listener said something about someone, the direct responsibility lies uh, with the station. Similarly, uh, you know, but, but online now is actually the the, the le- how things spread through sharing of content and how they become viral. Actually, the damage is often done in a greater way online and how content is shared. But a lot of these platforms are making billions of euro. They're taking a lot of uh, a lot of advertising revenue from broadcasters, and a lot of fake news is spread through these uh, platforms in domestically and across the world. So I think there there has to be a balancing of rights here. So uh, and there has to be a balancing of responsibilities. They can't continue to have a hands-off approach and say we facilitate content. A bit like if you were to say that you just facilitate what listeners might say about each other uh, through your channel, that wouldn't be acceptable by the law. And I think that's why there needs to be greater obligations here. But but how these companies are getting away with it is that they're so big, they're across so many nation states, they're multinational, they're big conglomerates. They're a bit... they're, They're... the, their responsibility kind of mirrors and symbolises how they pay tax in that they're, they're in so many places they can limit and mitigate the amount of tax they pay and similarly they mitigate and limit uh, the amount of responsibility they have to what is said about people online. And I think they're, they're, they have, they need to, there needs to be greater obligations imposed on them from an Irish and a European perspective so that we protect citizens and we protect families where harmful content 
uh, is, is spread about people online. And I think uh, there's a range of measures that we're exploring as a justice committee to hopefully rectify that wrong. Okay, and we'll look forward uh, to seeing your report and the recommendations in it uh, and those hearings are ongoing. Uh, we leave it there for the moment and many thanks for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil, TD, Jack Chambers, who's a member of the Oireachtas Justice Committee. The Michael Reed Show. Now, the Dundalk woman, Lisa Smith, who uh, went uh, to uh, Syria and uh, says hasn't been radicalised, continues to be detained with her two-year-old daughter in the Al-Hal displacement camp in North Syria for wives and children of ISIS fighters. She wants to come home, but yesterday the Assistant Guard Commissioner, Michael O'Sullivan, told RTE News uh, that if she does, she'll be uh, questioned about terrorist offences and is under investigation. Let's talk about this with Declan Parr, security analyst. Uh, very good morning to you, Declan, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, you're not surprised to hear that she is under investigation. If you're surprised at all, uh, it's only because it's taken so long for the authorities to announce this. Yes, in a nutshell. Um, she has been under um investigation from a broader perspective for some time uh, by both Garda Security and Intelligence Branch and indeed uh, the Defence Forces uh, Intelligence Director. But they would have been looking at this from the point of view of national security and gathering together information with a view to assessing uh, any threat to the state, not just not so much by her, but the activities she was engaged in and who she associated with that would have led to her state of mind that caused her to actually go to participate in um, in Syria and work with such an odious regime. But what the uh, what Commissioner O'Sullivan mentioned uh, yesterday is now that there is a specific investigation going on to ascertain as to whether she has committed a crime and can she be prosecuted. So this is this is a significant step forward. It means that if she comes back into this jurisdiction, she is likely to face uh, the prospect of a prosecution. But then, in some ways, it's all academic because the likelihood of her coming back into this state at this point in time is pretty remote, given the fact that Turkey has commenced military operations in the region Mm. where she is incarcerated at the moment. Is it possible that she and her daughter uh, may end up being killed as a result of that military action? Well, I don't want to sound alarmist about it, but where combat operations are taking place, if you happen to be in the vicinity of that, you know, anything can happen. By their nature, they are fluid and they are chaotic and erratic. And whether you're a combatant or not, if you're in the, the vicinity, I mean, the, you mm. may, your listeners may have heard reports in the media this morning. One of the, the distinct differences between the Kurds and the Turks is the Turks are, uh, have a very large, well-equipped military. They have all of the support uh, elements that a, a military would require, such as uh, artillery, such as tanks, such as air power. The Kurds do not have that. So the Turks, if they use the full array of their weaponry at their disposal, can can create a lot of casualties on the ground that are not involved in the fight. So if uh, if combat spreads to the area, the, 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 the distinct geographical area where um, she's been held, yeah, it is a possibility. And that's the intention of the Turks. Uh, they see the Kurds as terrorists and she's been held by Kurds. Uh, so her life is at risk. Now, I think the United Nations says that Ireland has a responsibility to Lisa Smith uh, and certainly has a responsibility to her young daughter. Well, 
Yes, yes and no. I mean, Ireland, of course, has a responsibility to all its citizens uh, if they find themselves in harm's way. But there, there's a spectrum uh, of that responsibility. You know, if you have an Irish citizen that gets caught up in a situation that's not of their doing, uh, the state will offer what assistance it can. Uh, you may, again, listeners may have heard Department of Foreign Affairs issuing statements that they would offer counsellor assistance. But that's, that's very limited in what can be done once uh, uh, you're in a theatre of operations where uh, a war is taking place. Uh, the, the time for uh, the state to have taken Lisa Smith and her daughter out of Syria was two, three or four months ago. Uh, it's, the window of opportunity is rapidly closing, if it hasn't already closed, to be quite honest. Um, you know, citing Ireland's responsibilities here uh, is not entirely fair on the basis that Lisa Smith is not a blameless uh, participant. However, her child is. And I think that's what exercises uh, the minds mm. of most people in this country, be they you know, ordinary civilians or be they members of government, in terms of how to resolve this situation. We should bear in mind, too, though, there are a number of other European Union partner nations uh, that have far more citizens here. And the ideal situation to resolve this would have been in a, a across-the-board European Union approach to this, uh, rather than Ireland acting unilaterally. Um, certainly the opportunity for Ireland to have acted unilaterally to take their citizens out of there, the, the uh, Smith and her, her child, mm. was far more uh, likely to have happened uh, a few months ago. Uh, for Ireland to be able to act unilaterally now would require capabilities that I do not think we have. Um, because the military, the defence forces did uh, suggest a plan at one point that involved liaison with the American authorities on the ground where they would have been able to bring uh, Smith and her child to the border with Jordan and hand them over to Irish personnel. It's very straightforward. The likelihood of that being able to happen now is, is, is remote. I, I'm not even sure if there are any American personnel still in the vicinity yeah. of, uh, of that camp. Uh, the, the, the Kurds are busy fighting for their lives. So uh, who would the Irish state liaise with in this situation? That remains to be seen. Keeping in uh, mind that she's a, a local woman, uh, it'll make for very depressing listening for her family and friends uh, who uh, may have the radio on uh, at the moment uh, and uh, her parents may is, be listening is, to it us. It is, but taking, we, we, we have to bear in uh, mind something in terms of, uh, uh, of people lining up to apportion blame in different directions. Yeah. The primary uh, person at fault for this situation is Lisa Smith herself. She took a number of steps voluntarily to put herself in this situation. She willingly, uh, it appears by by her own statements in broadcast and print media, uh, sought to be engaged with this regime, which uh, even the dogs in the street at the point she entered Syria knew was an odious regime that was engaged in bloodshed and carnage. Uh, the state's responsibilities diminish in that regard, you know, as opposed to had she been a holidaymaker that caught up, got caught up with this. And it, it has been now been made more complex by the fact that, um, that there are a series of military operations. And even if that is correct, though, Declan, it doesn't come as any comfort, I'm sure, to her parents uh, who may be listening, wondering uh, how we could turn our backs on their granddaughter uh, who is facing a potential death sentence. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I've always said that from a humanitarian point of view, regardless of what Lisa Smith uh, is alleged to have done or didn't do, that uh, the right thing to have done when it was possible was to bring her out. Um, but politically, 
it was made very difficult. And I think, you know, again, we need to understand this. Um, Smith herself made a number of statements in the recent past that made it that made her a political hot potato. It made her politically toxic. Uh, she showed no remorse. She showed no awareness of her her um, her engagement with Islamic State. And you know, she was making suggestions uh, that she was hoodwinked or duped or whatever else that frankly beggared belief. And had she stayed quiet and avoided those interviews. Um, had people who uh, were, were were speaking quietly behind the scenes been left to get on with things, she and her daughter may well have gotten out. And it's it's, it's important to understand that part of the reason for the necessity for the uh, the guard investigation isn't just about the law. There is a there is a, a broader aspect to this, and that is the fact that there is such a level of public outrage. In the country, I was genuinely surprised by it at times, how vociferous vociferous it was and how consistent it was. So if if Lisa Smith came back to these shores and didn't face a prosecution, I would genuinely fear for her safety and that of those around her, because um, people feel that she didn't kind of pay a price. In many respects, the safest outcome for her would be if she was prosecuted and convicted and served a, a short period uh, of a custodial sentence, it would diffuse the uh, the level of a program about it. Okay. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Much appreciated. Declan Power, Security and Defence Analyst, brings our programme to its conclusion today because our time has, in fact, run out on us. Remember, if you'd like to listen back to today's programme, there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. I hope you have a lovely weekend, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.